Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Nosilicast Podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, 2022, and this is show number 911. Well, last week I announced a new audience participation game I'm calling I'm Still Using It. The idea is for you to write a paragraph or two about some piece of tech, like hardware or software, that's really lasted through the test of time. I'm going to be reading these little stories over the holidays. So if you send in these stories, that's going to help me take a little bit of a break. And I think it's going to be fun to take a break from the new shiny and instead talk about stuff that's really, you know, lasts lasts over a long time and stays useful. Now, I've gotten quite a few submissions already, but I want a lot more. Remember, you don't have to record the audio unless you want to. If you write a lot, though, I might ask you to record because long-form content starts to sound really funny if it's read in the wrong voice. So please send me your stories of tech that's not the new shiny, but you still find useful by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com and make the title, I'm Still Using It. That way it'll sort into the mailbox where I'm collecting all of these stories. And I can't wait to hear your stories of what you're still using. This week, our guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Dan Morin. Dan is the author of the Galactic Cold War series of sci-fi espionage capers. He's a former senior editor at Macworld. He's a writer for Six Colors and Tidbits, amongst other publications. And he's a prolific podcaster as co-host of Clockwise and The Rebound. But I didn't have him on the show to talk about any of that. Dan is a very recent father, and I wanted to talk to him about the latest and greatest in baby tech. Now, he's not as techy as you would think on a lot of his choices for baby tech, so I think it's a really fun interview because it's a very good balance of where maybe technology doesn't always solve all of the problems. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond and your podcatcher of choice as number 747 of uh, the Chit Chat Across the Pond Light podcast with Dan Morin. Listener Kiwi Graham joins us to give a little bit of feedback on last week's episode. Kiwi Graham here. I thought with regards to Nisilicast 909 and your chat about fishing the elderly, with my professional consultant's hat on, I have a significant number of clients over 70 years old. And the main IT advice I give them and their families to help both cope with and protect from diminished cognition is to move to using only an iPad. It has a downside of no ability for me to remote connect when giving them support. But conversely, that is a big upside for preventing scammers taking control. As an example, I was recently visiting my mother-in-law and noticed her old PC laptop was in the living room. I'd moved her to an iPad about four years ago, so I asked her why the PC was out, and she replied, that it was the only way she could interact with, quote, the people trying to get my money back, end quote. Closer inspection of the PC showed that they had gotten her to install any desk, but luckily they hadn't gotten any further. Of course, there are other ways in which an iPad is great for older folks who are non-tech literate, but to my mind, the security aspect alone justifies the purchase. I hope this idea helps others navigate the tricky subject of implementing inverse parental controls. Cheers. Thanks for that, uh, Kiwi Graham. That was a really interesting solution to the problem. Um, 
using an iPad when making it where they can't possibly get into trouble. And that's actually why Steve's mom didn't get into trouble. Well, she was smart enough to call me. I shouldn't say smart enough. She was aware enough of what was going on to call me when uh, she saw that weird thing come up about uh, PayPal on her screen. And so um, she, but she was on an iPad, so she couldn't have gotten into trouble maybe but maybe she would have gone over to her Mac had that come up. So that, that's really, really good advice, and I appreciate the feedback. You all know that the hallmark of an effective NoSilicast review is that we all must start with the problem to be solved. There is one exception to this hard and fast rule. Sometimes there's something that's just cool and doesn't solve any problems at all. The other day I was listening to a podcast where they were droning on and on about VR and AR, and you know how I feel about those things. They were talking about how even with LiDAR on the iPhone since iPhone 12, the whole virtual reality thing has really been kind of a bust. We expected that developers would come out of the woodwork with amazing things we could do because of this new capability. Instead, here we are a couple of years later, and we have semi-functional replacements for a pullout rule to measure things around your house. This got me curious about what kind of apps are available in the iOS App Store in the augmented reality category. I found something super fun, and I bet you'll think it's fun too. I'm not sure it solves any problems for me, but it might for some other people. The app I found is called Scaniverse, and it's a free iOS app that lets you scan objects and create three-dimensional models of them. Now, before I get into how Scaniverse works, let's talk about that word free. Why is it free? As Bart has taught us, always be dubious of really cool free stuff. In August of 2021, Scaniverse was purchased by gaming company Niantic. Now, Niantic is best known for its game Pokemon Go. You may remember that Niantic was originally part of Google, but it's important to know that it is now an independent entity with funding from many different sources, one of which is Google, but Google does not own them. The CEO of Scaniverse wrote a blog post about the Niantic acquisition if you'd like to learn more about it and read about why it is free. They were very excited that the upgraded pro version of this became free, and I'm really glad that it's not owned by Google anymore and that there is a business plan behind Niantic, which makes it okay with me that Scaniverse is free. All right, Scaniverse is very simple to use and yet creates extremely detailed models. It was originally only for iPhones and iPads with LiDAR, iPhone 12 and higher, as I mentioned before, but with the release of Scaniverse 2.0, they added support for non-LiDAR devices. They say it supports all iPhones released since 2018, as well as most iPads. I can't speak to how well the models turn out without that extra depth data that you get with LiDAR, but it's super cool that pretty much all iOS devices can play. Before you ask, there is not an Android version yet. All right, now that we know why it's free and we know who gets to play along, let's finally talk about how to use Scaniverse to scan the world around you. Scaniverse opens with a big red New Scan button. Before scanning, the app asks you to choose a scan size. They're in three categories. Small object, which is for things like food, toys, pets, and flowers. Medium object for people, vehicles, and furniture. And large objects or areas for rooms, buildings, and outdoor spaces. Below these buttons is a button that says how to scan, which gives you some helpful tips along with a little video describing the process. Let's say I want to scan in the creepy looking three inch tall accordion playing cowboy my father carved. I'll choose the small object option. Next, you'll be asked whether you want to enable location services or disable them, which is what I prefer since I like to post these scans online for others to enjoy. Next, you'll see a screen inviting you to push the red button to begin to scan the object. 
Right above the red button is a tiny button that says range, followed by some number of meters based on which one of the sizes you chose. For small objects, it defaulted to 0.8 meters. This range tells you how much of the area surrounding the object will also be scanned. Now, 0.8 meters is significantly more surrounding area than I need for an object only 0.08 meters tall. I can either leave the range at 0.8 meters and edit a lot of surroundings later and take them out, or I can tap on that range and change it before I scan. Now, the lowest you can go is 0.3 meters, so I decided to give that a try. As you begin to move your camera around the object, you'll see red and white diagonal lines. Your goal is to view the object from every angle possible until all of the lines disappear. You can move your camera at any angle, even upside down, as Scanniverse will be able to stitch it together seamlessly. Now, one caution on scanning, move fairly slowly and deliberately. Don't swing it around. I tried scanning in my grandson Forbes, and I was a little worried that a six-year-old wouldn't stay still long enough, so I kind of whipped the camera around too quickly. The resulting model looks like something out of the movie The Thing, and I will have nightmares about this image forever. When you think you've captured the object from all angles, hit the stop button. Now, your model may look absolutely awful when you finish, but don't, don't give up. Don't worry about it. Scanniverse has not yet processed the image. You'll be offered three different processing methods, and one of them will be highlighted as recommended. The first says speed, and that's the fastest option LiDAR, and it says 10 millimeters. Not quite sure what that means. Next is area, best for rooms and spaces LiDAR, and that says 5 millimeters. Finally, it says detail, best for objects with texture, and it says photogrammetry next to that. While Scanniverse is processing, they warn you to keep the app open or it won't actually finish the job, and it can take a little while, a few minutes, maybe a minute or two. After the processing is complete, you can pinch and zoom in to see how good your scan looks after processing. You can change the processing mode after the fact if you don't like the results, or you can save the process model. If it looks bad, hit the button to change mode and you can delete the draft model and start over. Now, in my experience, scanning little things is harder than scanning medium-sized things. It took me four tries to scan in my weirdo accordion-playing cowboy to get one that, I don't know, it doesn't look great, but it doesn't look awful. My final effort isn't great, like I said, but it's, it'll do. In order to get a reasonably good scan, I had to put him up on some sort of pedestal so I could scan under his cowboy hat and all around his feet. Having him up higher also made it easier to be smooth in my camera movement. Once the scan is complete, there's still a lot of fun to be had. The platform I created to scan him was on a, a clear plexiglass box that had a model of a Model 3 Tesla inside. I put a piece of white paper over the top so Scanniverse wouldn't get confused by that clear top. The scanning process still brought in the car and some of the desk in spite of my efforts to, to reduce the range. But it doesn't matter. We'll be able to clean all that up. At the top of the screen, you'll now see Untitled Scan and a three-dot menu on the far right. In that menu, you can add a title of your scan. While you're in there, you can also see the time and date it was scanned. You can see some stats on your scan as well. My little accordion man has 48,000 vertices and 85,000 triangles in the model. That is insane. I remember clearly building up 3D models to determine stresses and strains in the 1980s where I had to type in the coordinates of each triangle by hand. 85,000 triangles is mind-blowing. Anyway, from there, I can also see that the file size is 5.1 megabytes, and the processing was done using detail mode with 8K texture. Across the bottom, there are five buttons to help you improve your model. The first is Valuable Help button. The next button allows you to edit your model. The options within editing are Crop, Filter, Exposure, Contrast, and Sharpness. 
Those last four options work exactly as they would in any image editing application, except they apply to a 3D model instead of a flat image. The fun is in the crop option. So while those other options are nice to have to improve the look and feel of it, crop is what you really care about. As soon as you hit the crop button, you'll be looking down on your model from above, and it will have a rectangle around it. You can drag the corners of the rectangle to crop in on the model. At the top, you'll see four buttons that allow you to see it from all four directions. Top, which is the default, left, front, and right. Before you start cropping, you may want to rotate the model to make the rectangular crop align with some edges on your model. There's a little slider to let you do that. As you flip through the different directions while cropping, you'll realize that one of them crops the height. Now I had to make sure that I don't crop off the top of the cowboy hat, but that I do crop out as much as I can of that plastic box that was underneath him. I don't really want to see a Tesla Model 3 underneath this little carving of this creepy cowboy. Above the rotate slider, you can change to a cylindrical crop if that would make more sense for your particular scan. I think that would look much better for my cowboy. Once you've cropped to your satisfaction, hit the check mark and hit save. Now don't sweat this part too much. All of this cropping and modifying of the lighting and sharpness is non-destructive. You can go right back into edit mode and change any of the options at any time. Now that you've done all this work, the real fun begins. The next button across the bottom is AR View. If you click that on the iPhone, it launches iOS's built-in AR Quick Look app. As soon as you tap on AR View, move the center of your camera to a flat surface and your model will just land on it and stick. From there, you can move around with your camera to view it from all angles sitting on the surface that it selected. Now, if you don't like where it landed, like let's say it landed on your desk and you really wanted it on the floor, just grab the model with one finger on screen and move it to another surface that you can see. You can even pinch in and out on the model to make it shrink and grow. Now, my description is accurate, but it's so dry compared to how amazingly fun this is. When you're in the AR Quick Look mode, you can even take a photo of your model in the real world. I took a fun photo of my little accordion cowboy standing on my desk right next to a scanned doppelganger. Now, while scanning in my dad's carvings has been fun, it's been even more fun to scan in people. Setting aside the horrific thing that I did to my grandson Forbes, I scanned in Steve and I've had oodles of fun with this model. Forbes and I went with Pat Dengler to the park without Steve, but it didn't matter. We brought him along. We put the model next to the playset, and I took a photo with Scaniverse of Forbes and Steve standing together. Now, there's two more buttons on the main view. One is Measure, which allows you to measure the distance between two points on the model that you select with your finger. This is the one spot where Scaniverse falls down a little bit. My little, weird, creepy, accordion-playing cowboy guy is nearly three inches tall, but Scaniverse is convinced that he's two and a quarter inches tall. When I measured my scan of Steve, it got his height to within about a quarter of an inch. Now, you may, might get a vague idea of how big something is using Scaniverse, but don't depend on it for accurate measurements. Finally, you can take your model and share it, and this is super fun too. You have five different sharing options. The first option is to post it to Scaniverse. If you choose to post your scan publicly, it will be added to the main Scaniverse feed and will appear on your profile page. If you choose an unlisted scan, only those with the link will be able to view your masterpiece. If you follow one of these links, you can actually spin the model around and zoom in and out on it via the web. So I can send you that link and you can play with it. I actually put a link in the show notes to my little accordion playing cowboy with the weird teeth on Scaniverse so you too can play with it and see what it looks like. I also posted a link to a six-inch tall farmer my dad carved. It's not nearly as creepy, but it gives you another idea of what you can do with this. 
With the cowboy, I completely removed the ground he was standing on, but with the farmer, I left a big platform that he was sitting on, so it's a little bit of a different look. It shows you how it works. In my neighborhood, there are a series of posts tied together as though they're on a nautical-looking bridge. I scanned in one of them using Scanniverse, and it came out really cool. I didn't realize when I was scanning it that someone had put a pink beanie baby inside it, so inside the post, so it was kind of a fun surprise when I started spinning around. I went, oh, look, there's a beanie baby inside. I thought that one was worthy of going on Scanniverse as well, so there's a link in the show notes to that. Now, from the share menu, the next option says share in message. Now, you might think that that's just going to open it up in messages, but it doesn't. It opens up the regular iOS share menu, letting you send a USDZ file directly to someone. That's the format that it's going to choose for you. Now, I assumed that it would be really annoying because they'd have to open it in some kind of specialized app. But guess what? Preview on the Mac or Quick Look AR on iOS can open these USDZ files directly and automatically, and you can spin them around and zoom in and out. How cool is that? I bet there are many amongst you that knew that this Quick Look AR app on iOS and Preview could open these USDZ files and spin around 3D models, but I sure didn't. You can also post to Sketchfab, which is another place to upload 3D models. They have a special gallery section on Sketchlab specifically for Scanniverse scans. When you do your upload, you get to choose whether to make it free for people to download, and if you do that, the service is free to you, but if you want to restrict it, you get 10 credits to start with. So I think that's kind of a nice little model there for you. If you go there, you can even download models from Scanniverse that people have put up there for free. Now, I had a lot of trouble uploading to Sketchlab. I had to make an account, and that's fine, And it would, but it would start uploading from the Scanniverse app, and then it would just fail. I tried three or four times. So then I sent it to myself on my Mac, and I tried from there to put it up on the web, and I was able to upload one file, but the second time I tried to upload a file, it didn't work. It seemed to get partway through my ability to put in all the description and the tags and everything, but then it didn't let me actually push publish. I wondered whether that was operator trouble. I went back later, and it did seem to work, so I don't know what was different. Well, anyway, back in Scanniverse, there's also an option to make a video of your model. This is kind of an interesting way to do it, too. You can set the type of motion. There's things like orbit or flyby or spiral and more. You can change the speed of the animation, as well as change the aspect ratio of the video and the backdrop of the video. Finally, you can export the model in seven different formats, one of which is USDZ. They give you a little hint on why you'd want to choose which format. For example, they explain that the FBX format is supported by most 3D software and game engines. USDZ is listed as best for ARKit and sharing to iPhones, so that explains why it works so well. Now, I'm sure Tom Merritt is laughing at the fact that I'm enjoying something about virtual reality or augmented reality in this case, because I'm always telling him how much I think it's silly, but I've had hours of entertainment with Scaniverse so far, and I'm still amazed that it's free, and hosting it on Scaniverse and Sketchlab is also free. I still don't know that augmented reality is solving the problems of the world yet, but I sure think Scaniverse is neat. Download it now to your iPhone or iPad from the App Store for free. Last month, I told you about a really cool service called The Noun Project, which for a small fee gives you access to thousands of really nice line art icons. I've been enjoying jazzing up my blog posts with Noun Project icons when I don't have a suitable screenshot to keep readers from getting bored and falling asleep. When I wrote the article about The Noun Project, I talked about how I discovered that they have a delightful macOS app. 
It's been ever so much more efficient now for me to do a quick search for an icon in the app and simply drag it right into my blogging software, MarsEdit, as a PNG, instead of downloading from the website and all that nonsense. So with blog posts, there's a thing called a featured image. You know, when somebody posts a link to a blog post on social media, if it has a featured image, the link will expand to have a nice little excerpt and show the image. Without featured images, most people won't click on links. On occasion, I've been using Noun Project icons from the macOS app as my featured image, and it creates a problem for people who use dark mode on Twitter and other apps. Alert No Silicastway David Sheneman, also known as TV Wonder on Twitter, sent me a screenshot of what a recent post looks like to him. With a nearly black background in his app, he can easily read the white text of my post, along with quite legible baby blue text for the link. But below that is a very dark gray square with a black icon on top of it. It looks really bad, and it's nearly impossible to tell what it's supposed to be. Using the Noun Project's macOS app, I've been choosing PNGs to drag into my articles, and the only option in the app is to have a transparent background in the PNG. But a transparent background on a PNG picks up the blacks or dark gray of dark mode for people like David. I wrote to the Noun Project asking them if I was maybe just missing an option to get a non-transparent PNG in the app, and they thanked me for my interest and feedback, but said that wasn't an implemented feature at this time. Now, I could go back to using the Noun Project website instead of the app, since it does give you the option of a transparent PNG or one with a background color of your choosing. Now, for my diagrams, transparent PNGs are ideal because the connecting lines can attach right to the graphics. If I use PNGs with a background, even a white background, then the lines connect to the edge of the background, and it doesn't look good. I don't like the way that looks. So I've got several solution paths here. The first one is pretty easy. I could use the Noun Project website when I'm doing images for blog posts, and then the apps when I'm making a diagram. Or I could keep using the app, download the image, and convert it to have an opaque background. The, the transparent background of a PNG is created using the alpha channel. This is a channel that adds a percentage of opacity to the image. If the alpha channel is set to 0%, the background will be transparent. If it's set to 100%, it's opaque, and you can actually set it to different varying percentages in between. Now, there's a very simple way on a Mac to turn off this alpha channel on a transparent PNG. I could simply open the PNG in preview, choose File, Export, and then I, I, from there you can see the default format will be PNG, and there's a checkbox next to the word alpha. If I simply uncheck that box, hit Export, I will have created an opaque PNG. Well, that sounds easy. It's also tedious. For one thing, file export is two menu picks with the cursor because there's no keystroke for export in preview. If I don't want to use the web version of the Noun Project, I have two choices. For every single PNG I use from the Noun Project web app or the Noun Project app, I can export the PNG to disk, right-click and choose open in preview. Since CleanShot X is my default PNG editor, I have to right-click and choose open in preview, not just double-click. Then use two menu clicks to select file and then export, then click a checkbox, then hit enter to export the opaque PNG, and finally drag the PNG into my blogging software. Or another option is I could spend countless hours trying to create an automated process to make opaque images out of my transparent PNGs from the Noun Project app. Which one do you think I chose?
All right, I'm going to walk you through all of the options I tried in order to automate this process. I did stick with this until I found a solution, but listen carefully so maybe you can be the one who gets to say, I see your mistake, Allison. You forgot to just do this, or I know an easier way. I'm wide open to somebody finding an easier way than the way I did it. While many might suggest that an Automator workflow could solve this problem, I stopped learning Automator when Apple showed its cards that it wasn't the future of automation on the Mac. The tool that seemed tailor-made for this automation task was Keyboard Maestro. It's modern and it's being kept up to date. So the reason I say Keyboard Maestro would be a good uh, app to do the automation is I know it can open files in a specified app from the Finder. I know it can select menu items. Now the checkbox might be tricky, but there is a way to teach Keyboard Maestro to identify things on screen, even if the checkbox isn't something easy to select. Keyboard Maestro can also send keystrokes, so hitting Enter to save at the end is trivial. In Keyboard Maestro, I chose an action called Open Finder Selection and I chose Preview as the application to open the file. I selected a transparent PNG in the Finder, and I ran that automation. The file opened in Preview. Step one, done. Keyboard Maestro has another action called Select or Show a Menu Item. If you use the little dropdown to choose Preview as the application in question, you'll see another dropdown to choose the exact menu item. I selected Preview, File, Export, dot, dot, dot. Now that dot, dot, dot's interesting. I selected a transparent PNG in Finder, and I ran my now two-step Keyboard Maestro macro, and it worked. The file opens in preview, and the export menu is chosen from the file menu. I was cooking with gas. All right, now for the tricky bit. Trying to teach Keyboard Maestro what that checkbox looks like and to tell it to click on it when it finds the checkbox. The Keyboard Maestro action is called Click at Found Image. While this process sometimes works, it's very fragile and it tends to fail at a later time for no apparent reason, but I was going to try it one more time. I dragged the click at found image action into the Keyboard Maestro workflow. The next step is you take a screenshot of what you want it to look for and you drop that into the action. Once the Keyboard Maestro macro finds a match to the image you've given it, you have to tell it where in the image to click. You define the location in the image from a corner or from the center by a number of pixels. With my screenshot open in CleanShot X, I used PixelSnap from getpixelsnap.com, it's also available in Setup, to measure the distance from the upper left corner to the middle of the checkbox. My macro now says, open the selected finder item in preview, choose export from the menus, and click on the checkbox if it can find it. I selected my transparent image again, and I ran the macro, and it failed. As I said, I'm used to found image click fixing, uh, failing, but that's not what failed. This time, the macro was saying, I can't find that file export menu you were talking about. It, it identified it before I added a third step, right? I had two steps. I had to open it and open that menu item, and it worked. But now that I have a third step, it can't do the second step. The exact error message is macro canceled, select menu item, failed to find target menu bar for file export. All right, so I disabled the click found image step, that third step, and the macro still can't execute that menu selection. I can entirely delete the click on found image action, leaving all of those first two steps that worked before, open file and preview and select export, and it still didn't work. I created the macro from scratch again. Now, remember I told you that Keyboard Maestro would allow me to select a menu from an application and it showed the path for preview file export? Well, guess what? 
The next time I tried to do that exact thing, actually, I think I said it backwards before. Originally, it was file export. Now, Keyboard Maestro says it's it's not keyboard ex. I'm sorry, it's not file export. It's file export as. But that's not what the real menu said at the time. So obviously, Keyboard Maestro is getting confused. No worries, I've got another trick up my sleeve. I can add a keystroke to the preview menu using System Preferences keyboard shortcuts. That way, I only need to tell Keyboard Maestro to type the keystroke. And don't worry, it's pretty little head about knowing those menu commands because it's clearly confused. When I went to System Preferences to create an app short shortcut for preview, I double-checked. and Now the export menu says export as dot dot dot, just like Keyboard Maestro says it does. So I, I know you're going to think I hallucinated that Preview changed its menu, but I can prove it. I just happened to have taken a screenshot of it the first time and the second time I checked it, and they're different. Okay, so I created the keyboard shortcut in System Preferences, and I told Keyboard Maestro to type it in to bring up the export menu. When I tried to run the macro, guess what happened? The file opened in Preview, and then it beeps at me like I tried to select an option that wasn't available. Now, if I manually type my key my keystroke, the file export dot 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 menu came right up. Well, if you've never used Keyboard Maestro before, you might think, oh, wow, Allison's making this super complex macro. But this is a trivially simple macro, and yet I could not get it to work. I abandoned that whole path after several hours of fighting with it. So my next idea was, certainly there must be an app to provide this functionality. Somebody's written something that just takes the alpha channel out, right? I searched the web, I looked in setapp, I looked in the Mac App Store for a solution. I found a handful of apps uh, through the web and through the Mac App Store that were designed to remove that alpha channel, but they were all more than five years old. One was on an insecure website, so I avoided that one. One of the ones in the Mac App Store had a review that said the resulting image ended up all black. So I skipped over that one too. I found one that was old, but I didn't see any huge red flags. I downloaded it and I ran it on a test PNG and the resulting image ended up all black. All right, solution path number two was abandoned. Well, over the course of the next day, I kept thinking I must be missing something really obvious in the way preview and keyboard maestros were working together. And I kept trying every angle I could think of without success. I briefly dabbled with using Keyboard Maestro to open the PNGs in Affinity Photo, but Affinity Photo is really slow to open images, and I figured I'd probably run into the same problem anyway. Next, I thought, maybe Apple shortcuts could do the job. I'm not at all skilled in shortcuts, so I started by searching the gallery to see if I could find a starting point. I didn't find anything helpful. I tried searching Matthew Casanelli's vast library of shortcuts, but no joy there either. I gave it my best shot at writing a shortcut from scratch, and I got much farther than I expected. I failed, of course, but I, I got a lot farther than I expected. I was able to get the selected file in Finder. I was able to save it as a PNG, but it still had the alpha channel. It didn't seem to have a way built in to say, turn off that pesky alpha channel. I tried to mask the image with a rounded rectangle, thinking maybe that would put it underneath it. And uh, then I had to convert the, ma the masked image to a PNG, but that whole masking thing didn't do anything. I've never really grokked masking that well, so it was probably the wrong path. I did figure out that instead of converting it from a PNG to a PNG, one with and one without uh, the alpha channel, I could just convert it to a JPEG, and that would eliminate the transparency since the JPEG format doesn't support uh, the alpha channel. Now, I didn't want to use JPEG at first because the files are much bigger than PNGs, 
But it turns out the icons are so simple that the JPEG only increases the size from 10 kilobytes to 14 kilobytes. I guess I could allow that extra four kilobytes to make David happy. I tried my fancy schmancy three-step shortcut and it worked to simply convert a transparent PNG to an opaque JPEG. I decided to challenge the automation gremlins and I used the details menu to add my shortcut to the services menu. After a bit of faffing about, I can now right-click on a PNG, pull all the way down to quick actions and choose my shortcut, convert to PNG. Astonishingly, this also worked. You know, right-clicking on a file and pulling all the way down to two menus is almost as hard as removing the alpha channel in preview. No worries, there's an option to add a keyboard shortcut to shortcuts. But guess what happens when I use my keyboard shortcut? Absolutely nothing. I tried three different keystrokes and none of them had caused anything to happen on my Mac. Now, it's incredibly difficult to search the internets for help with shortcuts because you get piles of results about keyboard shortcuts, not the shortcuts app itself. And what I'm looking for is help with keyboard shortcuts within shortcuts, so I know help uh, at all of ever finding any answer to my issue. Now, I did find on iDownload blog an article explaining 13 ways to quickly run a shortcut on iPhone, iPad, and Mac. It didn't help me diagnose my problem with the keyboard shortcut, but they explained that you can also tell Siri to run a shortcut. Oops, sorry, I should have said the S lady. Anyway, I turned S lady on in Control Center, and I clicked on the icon. I said... Run, convert to JPEG, which was the name of my uh, my little shortcut. She just sat there. I wandered off to do something else. I got distracted, looked at a web page or something. And a minute or two later, she loudly pronounced, that's done. Sure enough, the shortcut had run. Success, but is it really? Now, I tried type to Siri, but that's even more work because first I have to launch the S lady, and then I have to type out this big, long name. You might wonder why I don't say, hey, S lady, to invoke it. But you know the answer why I don't do that. It's because my HomePod, iPhone, or iPad will certainly answer long before my, the Mac version of S Lady realizes that I'm asking her a question on my Mac. Now, another way to invoke shortcuts on the Mac is to add it to the dock, and that does seem to work well. I don't use the dock for launching apps, so it might be tolerable to just have one shortcut in my dock. It still bothered me that the keyboard shortcut method didn't work, so I tried it again and... That time it worked. <laughs> Come on. Even though this shortcut is intermittently working, I can only seem to get it to save into a specified folder too. I've been using my delete me folder for testing, but that means every time I run the shortcut, I'd have to go fetch the converted JPEG and move it back to where I have my original PNG. I found an option to get the keyboard, or t I'm sorry, to get the parent directory of the shortcut input, which sounded promising, uh, but in the save converted image section, though, I can't use the parent directory as a place to save. I did figure out how to make it create a subfolder and delete me, so at least I'd be able to find the files easily after I converted them. It was all working great, but after I came back to it for after a dinner break, the keyboard shortcut stopped working again. I honestly do not understand why so many people are wild about shortcuts. Solution path number three landed on the abandoned pile with the other two. Well, I was about to give up after only three days of trying to get the, to automate this tiny little process when I had an epiphany. I hadn't searched for a way to do it from the command line. About a hundred years ago, Bart taught us about a command line tool called Image Magic. He and I both used this image manipulation tool to add watermarks to our most prized images. 
I used ImageMagic to even write an app to add a drop shadow to my images. It's super powerful and used by a lot of people, so you can usually find someone who has written most of what you need, and then you can just tweak it a little bit to get what you want. I found a discussion in Stack Overflow where someone had uh, gave the exact command I needed. After installing ImageMagic on my newly nuked and paved machine using Homebrew, by simply typing brew install ImageMagic from the command line, I followed the instructions. It said, convert your input file, then dash alpha space off, and then your output file. Guess what? My image came out all black. <laughs> Well, I scrolled up to the date at the top of the discussion, and it had been posted nearly eight years ago. I'm starting to think that maybe something changed in the last five or so years, and all of those apps I had looked at used this same command. On a lark, I tried running the command again, but I changed dash alpha off to alpha on, or I guess dash alpha on, and my image was again transparent. I narrowed my Google search to only give me results in the last year. This gave me a slightly different command in ImageMagic. The real answer is to remove the alpha channel, not turn it off. The correct command is then convert your input file, dash alpha space remove, and then your output file. I finally had a working single line command in the terminal that would remove the transparency of my icons just for David. I had the working engine of a solution, but it's pretty obvious that opening up terminal and typing a command was far more effort than opening preview and unchecking a box. I needed to run this via a keystroke. Instead of opening the terminal to run a command, I could create a shell script and embed it inside a keyboard maestro macro. My goal was to be able to select a PNG, hit a keystroke, and have my macro remove the alpha channel and save it, adding dash no alpha to the end of the name. Took me probably three to four more hours to get a one-line command to do my bidding inside Keyboard Maestro. Now, you surely think I'm bananas to have spent so much time and such a little problem to be solved, but I love this kind of project because of how much I learn. I learned how to find a file's name and path in Keyboard Maestro. I learned how to assign the name and path to a variable. I even learned how to call a Keyboard Maestro variable name from within a shell script. All you do is prepend it with $KMVAR underscore. That's obvious, right? Anyway, I learned that you can't call libraries from within a Keyboard Maestro shell script without specifying the entire path to the command. So you can't type it just like you do in the terminal. You have to give the full path. When I tried to run the convert command from ImageMagic, it didn't run inside Keyboard Maestro's shell script action. I figured that the Keyboard Maestro shell script didn't know about what libraries I had installed and that it was a path problem, but I didn't know exactly how to specify it in my shell script. After doing a lot of searching for an answer, I finally asked for help in our Programming by Stealth Slack channel. I tried really hard to do this on my own without anybody from Slack helping me, but I got the help I needed very quickly. Ben Rose, who is also an astrophysicist, by the way, and then later on Bart gave me the same answer. They told me to type which convert in the terminal, and that would give me the full path to the convert command. I could then use that full path in my Keyboard Maestro shell script. Once I was using the full path to the convert command, it still didn't work, but it had a new error. It kept saying no such file or directory. I had verified that the script knew the variable name for the file and that it could find the file name using the variable, so no such file or directory was a baffling error. It occurred to me that maybe I had to tell the shell script the full path of the input and output files. That solved the unknown file directory problem. <laughs> but it still didn't work. 
The whiny little thing now said that it was a read-only file system. Another trip to the Google suggested that I had forgotten to give Keyboard Maestro full disk access in the security and privacy preferences pane. That solved the final problem in my single-line shell script. See how much I learned? Every bit of that information is portable, so it's now dutifully recorded in KeepIt. I keep all the portable knowledge about programming and other things in KeepIt so I don't have to relearn this the next time. Somebody will probably have to remind me that I put it in KeepIt, but it's in there somewhere. Finally, I assigned a hotkey combination and I added it to my Stream Deck. So now with a push of a button, I can convert any transparent PNG to remove that pesky alpha channel. The bottom line here is that I had a blast this week trying to figure out how to solve a tiny problem by spending at least 20 hours automating it. I may not be the best programmer in the world, but I make up for my lack of knowledge and skill with dogged persistence. I learned a lot, I succeeded at my goal, I'm, and I made David and all the other dark mode people happier, and I had a blast doing it. Now all I need to do is remember to push that button when I use transparent PNGs. When the iPhone 14 Pro was announced, I was really kind of confused by the cameras. I knew there were four cameras, but there were only three lenses. My buddy Ron, who you've heard from before, is a photographer and a technology nerd, and he comes over all the time, so we have time to talk about these kinds of things, and he knows a lot about image sensors. He and I have spent a bunch of time noodling how all this works on the iPhone 14 Pro, and asked him if he could come on the show to noodle it with all of you with me. Welcome back to the show, Ron. Thanks, Allison. How's Good your, to be here, as always. <laughs> how's your Aura ring still working? It's it's still working. It's still telling me when my sleep sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Still doesn't tell you what to do about it, though, does it? Oh, I've I've correlated against one, and that's temperature. Oh, that's interesting. If it's sixty eight degrees in my house or below, I sleep like a baby. Oh, oh, that is really interesting. As <laughs> soon as it goes above the temperature, then goes down the toilet, huh? <laughs> well, we're not here to talk about rings or uh, smart devices like that, but we want to talk about the iPhone fourteen Pro. So, if you look at the back of the iPhone fourteen Pro. It looks just like the iPhone 13 Pro. You see three lenses. But if you open the camera app, you see four options. You see 0.5, 1X, 2, and 3. Now, I've already talked on the show about why does only the 1 get an X. I don't know why 2 and 3 <laughs> don't get an X and 0.5. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, you see that. So though none of those are like a digital zoom. So you've got four cameras, but three lenses. And I'm hoping we can work out how this actually happens. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one of the biggest questions I have is, is there one image sensor in there, or are there four image sensors? <laughs> what, what's actually inside? So a actually, after we talked, I got very interested in this. And of course, because we're talking about Apple, there's always a limit to how much true knowledge you can have. Right. But I did find a couple of websites that were pretty invasive as far as the design, and they actually so showed some photos of some of the... the um, image uh, modules inside the phone. Oh, okay. And it turns out that there are actually three separate sensors. Okay. One behind each of those lenses that you see on the back of your camera. Okay. So otherwise they would have to be optically folding them together and there's not enough depth to do that. Exactly. I worked in optics. That's the part <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes. It, it wouldn't be practical. Okay. So there's there's three separate sensors, but now the the main camera... The, which might be called 1X, depending on their, their... And they call it the main camera. The main camera, depending <laughs> on their mood. Um, it's a it's a 48 megapixel sensor that's behind that. And let's, let's start there with how they turn that into 12 megapixels. So there's something about dividing by four, and I, 
I actually get lost pretty quickly on what they call it, what the technology, what are they doing? Well, so uh, there are a couple of things, terms that Apple has created here um, that in particular, going from the 13 to the 14, they now refer to a photo engine, okay. which I think is just their name for the new digital processing, primarily behind that big sensor. Okay. And so as we talked about before, you brought this up. Um, in order to generate this high-quality 12-meg uh, image from that sensor, which is actually a 48-megapixel sensor, they do what some people call binning, where they will take four individual pixels, they will interpolate and do other magic math. between them, math magic, in order to create a single pixel. So to me, binnings, and I've heard people call it pixel binning, but binning is like when you're when you're making uh, processors and they don't they don't reach the spec of how fast you want them to go. This is the two point six gigahertz, but you got a two point three gigahertz spec too. So you take out the ones that don't meet the two point six, and those become the two point three. That's binning to me. Like you're actually you're actually dumping some of them down. But pixel binning isn't that. You're not dumping them, right? No, as far as I can tell, and again, this is some of the you know, the close-in magic that they're not going to tell you about as far as the algorithms. But there is some published work on um, a couple of the overlays that they have in terms of, uh, I guess, the geometry of these of these sensors, how they deal with the, the data. And what they're really doing, I agree, the binning is not a good term here. It's really a fusion, if you will, okay. of the data okay. from four sensors, uh, pixel sensors, uh, pixels, pixels into a single pixel for the purposes of generating the 12 megapixel image. Okay. So I would suspect that by using four pixels to represent one, you would get more light? Correct. The, one of the things that they're trying to do is preserve brightness. And so one of the other things they did, which I also didn't realize until recently, is the actual sensor itself, that particular sensor, is about, I think, 25% larger than what was in the, the 13 Pro. Okay, so but, the, but so, not four times but bigger. Exactly. Okay. And, and so the other thing that they did, obviously, which you can tell a little bit from the back, is the lenses are slightly larger. Okay. So they also appear to be taller. That absolutely. That <laughs> significant. I've talked about that on the show. Right. So what they're doing is they're taking, and they're somehow mathematically combining uh, the data from four pixels together to provide a single pixel, and then eventually that all merges together into the final 12 megapixel image. Okay, so um, being an engineer, I know what Ron was talking about when he used the word interpolation. Uh, in this context, I would take it to mean that you're going to say, uh, if you had four pixels, you would maybe have a jagged line, but you can take those four, meld it into one, and make it a blend of the colors at, at that at that pixel, maybe? Exactly, and they probably have other things in there mathematically. They have like a weighting function and things like that. Mm. But it's interesting because I believe that somehow, and again, this is the magic, but somehow they actually um, operate on things like not only the illumination level, but maybe some other uh, measured quantities that they can, because they're trying, apparently they're trying to not only get brightness, but they're also trying to get true color balance and other things. And so there's probably a fair amount of math behind that process. And that's why binning is kind of an oversimplification, because there's probably a lot of math back there. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Steve asked a good question when it first came out, and, and I think I know the answer to it. But if you've got a 48 megapixel sensor and you're going to take every four pixels and make them into one, why didn't you just make a sensor that had pixels that were four times as big? 
<laughs> well, and so <clears throat> there are probably a couple of reasons for this. Um, one of which is maybe not as obvious, but um, for a still camera, you don't have some of the same constraints, for example, as when you're using it as a video camera. Oh, yeah, we did talk about this. Yeah. yeah. And so with the still camera, you know, the time it takes is just the shutter speed or whatever. But when you're talking about doing 24 or 120 frames per second, um, then the access time to get image data off of these pixels repeatedly uh, starts to probably come into play. And so what ends up happening is that Generally, when you have um, the each pixel is basically a, just a piece of that semiconductor sensor. Okay. And the larger those pieces are, um, usually they have something called capacitance, which limits the bandwidth, the rate at which you can pull data off of that pixel. Okay. And is that so, like, is that essentially like changing a charge level? Yes. Correct. And, and it and it's retaining that information and it, it takes time for it to, there's a, a, a decay time or that's something? That's exactly right. So, okay. so I did confirm that these sensors are still CMOS sensors and that's what they use is they use a charge base. It's not a, oh. it's not a CCD, but it's similar. And so what ends up happening, the gist of it is that the larger the individual pixel size, the more of this capacitance you have and the slower you can pull things off of it repeatedly. Okay, so they wouldn't be able to do uh, the the cinematic mode video, and, and, and is it still called Apple ProRes when it's in video? I don't know, but probably, there, whatever it is, um, there probably are some limits that start coming in just because of the video as opposed to the still image. Okay. Well, they've got burst mode, too, on the photos, exactly. so maybe burst that mode. But right. Any, anything like that where you're going to have be pulling a lot of data repeatedly off of it, um, that would start to come in. So I think that's one reason for it. Now, the other reason, though, is that um, obviously they did want to have a mode where you can go to the full 48 megapixel in their pro-raw format. Oh, I for, right, right, right. Right, and at that point, you you actually have a RAW file just like we have RAW files on any other digital camera. Our, on our big girl cameras. Yes, and a lot of people, obviously, even though it's a huge file, and I know you took a couple of pictures with uh -huh. that, um, but even though it's a very uh, big file, if you're trying to do a lot of you know cropping and so forth, it, you get the full resolution, basically. Well, okay, so... This gets into kind of the question about the uh, will get us into the two x camera here too. So when if you use a the forty eight megapixel version, if you take the raw photo and you have all forty eight megapixels, it's not that you could you can't zoom in more into that and have high resolution than you could with the twelve megapixel, can you? Or can you? You can. Oh, yeah, uh, because oh. you're getting the full forty eight. They're not being fused into okay. four, four into one. So. That's where the full resolution comes in, um, but you would do that obviously after the fact in whatever your photo editing program is. Okay, all right. So that that's a subtlety I hadn't thought about it. I guess it's obvious now. Now that you've explained <laughs> it to me in detail, I understand. I uh, should have known that. Um, so the other part that I get confused by is when you go into the two X, they say now it's twelve megapixels, but it's only using the center twelve megapixels of this forty eight megapixel sensor. But that's not digital zoom. Mm -hmm. That's right. Help me out here. How is that not digital zoom? So um, the you've got this 48 megapixel frame, if you will. And 
we said that when we're using the main camera and we go into the, we're using the standard 12 megapixel, it's fusing four into one. Right. So you have lost four times the resolution from the 48 megapixel equivalent frame. Right. 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 Now, if you imagine, if you turn off the data fusion part of it, the binning or whatever they call it. Okay. And you take a 12 megapixel image in the, okay. the center of this of this sensor, you will get, guess what? A 12 megapixel image, which is, but it's only the middle of this frame. So is it the same as if you took a 48 megapixel picture and you cropped it down to the 12 megapixels? That is exactly what it is oh, doing. Oh, okay, okay. That's all it's doing. It's just doing it in the camera. Okay, it's doing the camera before you take the photo, as you take the photo, not doing it after the fact. Okay, so those two pieces of information fold just folded together into the same answer. <laughs> right, it's, it's all the same. It's just what how much of this is being done in the camera as opposed to if you took that raw image at 48 megapixel into Affinity photo or whatever, you could do exactly the same thing. Now I want to go take a bunch of photos at different <laughs> resolutions of the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. over and over again and, and, and see what that does. Um, so let's see, you already answered my next question. Um, we talked at some point where you were talking about work you've done with space sensors. Uh, it, it, he used to work on satellites. He's a uh, satellite guy. Um, and there was something about the materials that you used that that made a difference. Yeah, I was I was curious about how in the in the in this case it seems as though um, Apple is still using Sony sensors, and I was curious about what kind of uh, these are all semiconductors uh, like silicon or whatever, and I was curious what they were using because. Um, there have been a lot of strides in semiconductor technology where they have been creating more novel uh, semiconductor types that for optics and optical stuff, uh, each one of them has a sensitivity range or efficiency that is different by the wavelength. So, uh, for example, the original silicon sensors were very uh, sensitive at what's called long infrared which is outside of our vision. We can't see that. Okay, right. And so that's one of the reasons actually why there are still like precision guided bombs and things that operate on long infrared is because it was easy to produce that wavelength and you could build sensors that were very sensitive at that wavelength. And I was curious when you get into the visible light, which is where these cameras operate, what are they using? Okay. And it turns out they're still using silicon, but they have optimized it, I guess, so that you get a very high efficiency, even at the wavelengths that we care about. And that's important just because otherwise it would be harder and harder for them to do like the low light um, performance that they do. Okay. Because generally what ends up happening is when you get out of that high efficiency area, the noise level, the noise floor comes up. Right. And so it's hard to get the signal over the noise in okay. order to get the good quality. Okay. So it's just very interesting that, um, you know, the commercial world has slowly realized that it's really important for these visible cameras. Before they were like CCD cameras that would, you know, watch over a 7 Eleven. But now that people want really high quality photos. And so they've had to, you know, optimize the sensors for that. 
That's interesting. So um, CCD, I know we're getting way off topic, but I, I, I always like all acronyms um, described. CCD is charge coupled device? Charge coupled device. Okay. And that- those were kind of more rudimentary um, devices that they used to use for sensors and so forth. And now they, they've actually gone away from that with these more, um, you know, higher performance and that's CMOS? Is the, it's a is C- the, CMOS is the technology. Okay. So CMOS apparently, CMOS has been around for a long, wait. I, Forever. I what does CMOS stand for? Anybody? Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor. Oh, semiconductor does, oh, it does. Start. Yeah. It's okay. an S. <laughs> um, but it, it was around for like the earliest digital uh, integrated circuits, but they quickly found out that they could also do other things with it, and that includes sensors. So... That's that's interesting. I, I like to see the the crossover and in information of of what we we're doing with uh, near infrared. I mean, everybody cares about near infrared now on account of uh, that's what James Webb is doing, right? So, exactly. So we really we really care about that uh, that technology nowadays. Um, I want I'm going to throw you a curveball. I uh, I gave uh, Ron some talking points just to remind him of the things we talked about, but. I am being driven bananas by something, and there may be no answer to this question, but it's it's really driving me <laughs> it's crazy. It's a trick question. This is a trick question. So I did a thing on the show talking about how if you take a picture with an iPhone 13 Pro and you set it to one X, or 0.5X, 1X, or 3X, when you look at in photos and you look at the, the get info on that, it tells you wide camera or ultra wide, wide, and telephoto. But if you take three photos or four photos now with our four cameras with the iPhone 14 Pro, it says the same thing on all of them. It says triple back camera. <laughs> and then it's, but it tells you how many millimeters the focal length is. So it'll say, it'll say, I think it's 24, 24 is 1X. Yeah, 24, is that 1X? Wait, no, I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, it, it all goes, it, it, yeah, hang on. Oh, I should have not done this to myself. I have it in my notes. <laughs> Someone is yelling out the answers. But basically, if you know what 1X is, then you can calculate what point, 0.5, 2X, and 3X is. But it's sort of a guideline. I know I know the uh, 3X is like 77. Yeah, that. But it should be 72. Yep. If the math was exact, it's more of a guideline, right? <laughs> so anyway, you've got these numbers that are like like 14, 24, you know, uh, it, it, they, all the numbers made sense when I when I did in the blog post. However... One of the things I like to do is I like to create a smart album in photos so that we, especially when I'm doing comparison photos and I want to say, okay, I want to see all of my, cam- all of my photos taken with my iPhone 14 Pro that are 2X. Mm-hmm. The way I do that is I use a smart album and I say focal length equals whatever the right answer is. What do you think it is? Is it? Well, 77 four- if it's a 3X. That would be the 3X. So yeah. let's, but the problem is I have to do the example of the 2X. Well, anyway. <laughs> I never get any photos at all <laughs> if I use the information from Get Info. So if I, I can find the photo and get and I do the Get Info and I look for that number and I do a smart album by it, it'll say, nope, you've never taken a photo with the iPhone 14 Pro with that focal length. So I said, all right, I know what I'm going to do. There's a, uh, a command line tool in the terminal called Exif Tool, mm-hmm. and you can get it through Homebrew. And so I installed it. It's real easy. And you say Exif Tool space, and you put the file name, you know, you export the file. And I'm going to describe, I'm looking at a photo. No one knows what uh, focal length this photo actually is. So I don't know if it was 2X, 1X, I'm not sure. But the one I've got an example of, it says focal length 6.9 millimeter, 
35 millimeter equivalent, 24.0 millimeter. <laughs> okay, so that might be the 1X. That could be the, yeah, the 1X. The 1X, right. and then 48 would be the 2X, mm-hmm. and 70-something would be the other one. <laughs> but it's a 6.9 millimeters. Is that like the that darn crop factor thing coming in with 35 millimeter equivalent of 24 millimeter? By the way, it doesn't matter. The answer is when you go into photos and you do a smart album, it if finds you say, it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> find it in 6.9 millimeters either. Um, that's the first I've seen of one of these uh, adjustment factors, shall we call it. Um, but it is interesting because clearly um, when you look at the actual aperture on the back of your camera, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I those are not, you know, 77 millimeters. Right. And so there is an equivalency that they're making. Um, but I've never seen anybody publish what those are. So I have no idea, you know. it. Well, uh, so the EXIF data must have that answer in there. But yeah, that's you, you a really would good think. point. I don't have a 77 millimeter. No, no, so, so 77 millimeter is huge. I mean, I have a 77 millimeter you know, 24 to two, 200 lens. It's not like that. <laughs> Ron, this is audio only, but Ron is holding his hands up like the size of a soup bowl. <laughs> Maybe a cup of soup. <clears throat> you know, so, I mean, I, I'm sure that there's this equivalence that they do. And, and you know, you could probably, if you know enough, you could work out the math. But in terms of your problem of trying to uh, assign those, um, those apertures, you know, I, I don't know what they would I, I wouldn't even i haven't looked at it so i wouldn't even know what they put in there because yeah you know you would think that they would well you said on the 13 it worked right yeah the 13 you can absolutely do that so now, it's like why wouldn't they do the same thing for the there, 14? there is one bit of hope um ios 16 is out as of the time uh, ron and i are recording and in ios 16 on the iphone at least the question of which camera took the photo, it does tell you ultra wide main and uh, telephoto and super telephoto. So I forget what the the fourth one is, <laughs> uh, but it does tell you on iOS 16. It doesn't tell you in Monterey, but by the time some people are listening to this, Ventura will be out, and I'm going to be really curious to see whether this problem just disappears. Adventure and that and that's where the there's some disconnect. If it doesn't, I'm just really confused. <laughs> yeah, I I would hope that it it's just a matter of, of a rolling upgrade uh, to get everything you know lined up um, because we've seen that sometimes with other products where you know it it has to be on both sides before it takes. Yeah. So yeah. I I wouldn't doubt that maybe that would be the case, but if it doesn't, then it seems like they're giving you a lot less information than they did before, which never is a good thing. Or, yeah, yeah. Or weirdly, information that's not all that useful. Like, right. why is it not 72? <laughs> why is it 77? <laughs> I don't think they like us very much. Well, I'm doing this uh, making Ron work for his uh, birthday dinner. So I'm going to I'm gonna cut us off here. I really appreciate you coming on because I don't think I could have adequately come close to explaining this by myself. Well, I, again, I only know what I uh, read in the newspaper, so um, some of your your uh, loyal uh, listeners may be out there going, that's a load of crap, and you may be getting some uh, feedback on that. But as far as I know, that uh, you know, it's really interesting what they've done with the 14 Pro, and, um, 
as a as an owner of one, I appreciate it when I look at the pictures. Yeah, so. it takes really pretty pictures. It really Actually, does. I'll give you a great sign off. Dave Hamilton's favorite phrase is, "I've already told you more than I know." <laughs> And that is very appropriate in my case. So thank you very much for having me again. All right. Thanks, Ron. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. If you'd like to hear more on that last topic, I had actually asked Bart a long time ago how the iPhone 14 Pro has three lenses before cameras. We were never able to coordinate our schedules, so coincidentally, he just released a solo episode of Let's Talk Photography where he answers the question. It's a different take on the question and very complimentary to my conversation with Ron. I'm sure you're going to want to listen to this episode, so look for Let's Talk Photography number 109, Schrodinger's Camera at lets-talk.ie, or better yet, just subscribe to Let's Talk Photography in your podcatcher of choice. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me your I'm still using it and anything else you want to say to allison at podfeed.com. If you have questions or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeed. If you want to join the conversation, you must join our Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.